Well, good morning. Merry Christmas. All right, well, this morning we're going to continue with this series of messages that we've been doing here throughout the course of the Christmas season, and we've been calling it uh, Jesus Came Into the World, and what we've been talking about is why. Why did Jesus come into the world, or to put it differently, what is Christmas really all about? And sort of in the course of talking about what it's really all about, we've talked a lot about what it isn't really all about, and one of the things that we've said is it's not about presents. Now, again, I want to say to you that we're not against presents. We enjoy presents. We give presents. We receive presents. We even get excited about presents. And I don't mind if you get really excited about presents, okay? I don't mind if you get so excited you're up all night Christmas Eve unless you're one of my children, okay? Presents are awesome. Have fun with them this Christmas. But it's not what Christmas is about. It just isn't. We've talked about hospitality because you have to talk about that around Christmas. Some of you go through so much to make Christmas like the perfect event for all of the people in your life that you love and even a few others, okay? And we know that and we appreciate that. And really you have this grand vision of somehow pulling off the perfect Christmas and of your mom and your mother-in-law bowing at your feet and declaring you the great giver of Christmas. I hope it happens to you. It won't, but I hope it will. But it's not what it's about. It's not. We've talked about family. You know, spending quality time with family amidst all of the Christmas hustle and bustle, and that's a challenge. We've talked about just everybody getting along at Christmas, and we said, you know, for some of you, the total win is no shouting, no pouting, no slamming doors, nobody leaving early, and everybody being on speaking terms when the whole thing is said and done, and it's going to be tense until it finally is, and then when it's finally over, you'll go, wow, that was great. But even if that doesn't happen for you, it's okay because it's not what Christmas is all about. As I kind of just went through all these different things, Christmas is about this and that and the other thing, I realized I've left one major component out of the deal, and that's Santa. I haven't even mentioned him in a don't-get-nervous-if-you're-a-parent kind of way, have I? And yet, if you think about it, if you were an alien from outer space, come to planet Earth to observe Christmas, I mean, come on, guys. You know, you watch the movies, you watch the television shows, you watch the commercials, you go down to the malls, you peep into people's windows, hopefully you don't get caught. But if you do, you have a spaceship, so you can get away and it's going to be fine, okay? But really, I mean, you drive through the neighborhoods and you look at all of the dolls and the blow-up things and the stuff on the roof and the deal. I mean, you've got to walk away assuming that at least for a lot of people, it's all about Santa because Santa is everywhere. He's everywhere. I noticed that as a kid, you know, I remember going to the mall with my mother, which just could not have been a good experience for her. I don't like going to the malls. I still don't like going to the malls. Sorry. But we'd go to go Christmas shopping, and I didn't know why, because Santa brought the presents, so that was always a little befuddling to me. But nevertheless, we would go and shop a lot, by the way, and we'd go to the mall, and there would be Santa Claus, and there'd be like a mile-long line of 9,000 people waiting 93 hours you know, and all the parents are irritated and all the kids are hungry and tired or overly agitated and excited. It sounded like a miserable experience to me. I never got my photograph, as far as I can remember, taken with Santa. It just didn't appeal to me. But Santa was there. Long line of people. Presumably, because he's a great guy, he's going to hang out until everybody has their chance. So we go to the mall. Santa's there. Long line, 93-hour wait. We get in the car. We go to another mall. He's there too. How does he do that? I grew up and I, I moved to different cities and I realized Santa Claus is, he's in every mall. 
every mall, and all at the same time. That's why we don't see him the other 11 months of the year. He's sleeping. This guy is busy. And he always wears the same outfit. Santa transcends fashion. It's not a very attractive outfit. It certainly isn't flattering. I mean, have you looked at it? And yet everybody loves it. If he changed it, we'd all be upset. But Christmas Eve is the biggie. Christmas Eve, Santa is pretty much everywhere, isn't he? He's all over the place. There were some scientists who did a study of what it takes for Santa to pull off Christmas Eve. And they estimated, and I think all their conservative, all of, all of their estimates are conservative, by the way, but they estimated that there are like 378 million people worldwide who celebrate Christmas. I think it's low, but we'll go with it. They then divided that group into family units to try to figure out how many houses Santa would have to go to. They did 3.5 children per household. I think that's high, but we'll go with it. So they come up with 91.8 million homes that Santa Claus is going to visit. You're thinking in 24 hours, but it's actually 31 if he moves from east to west. He picks up seven time zones along the way. So it's really 31 hours, and in 31 hours, Santa is going to visit 91.8 million homes. Which means, by the way, that he visits 822.6 houses per second for 31 hours straight. That's a lot for an older fellow to do. Seriously, and he's not in good shape. I don't know if you've seen him. But think about what that means, because practically speaking, this Thursday, when Santa shows up at your house, okay, he's going to park the sleigh, he's going to get out. He's going to gather up the presents that he has uniquely created just for you and for your family. He's then going to go down your chimney. No, he isn't. You don't have a chimney. Neither do I. We live in Florida. It's 81 degrees in December, except for today. It's insultingly warm. So how does he get in? I have no answer for that. So somehow he gets in, though the doors are locked, the windows are shut, and the alarm is on. Be glad he's not a thief. He could clean you out, but he doesn't. He parks his sleigh. He hops out. He gathers up the presents that are uniquely yours. He gets in the house somehow. Then he stuffs the stockings, he very carefully arranges the presents under the trees, he eats the cookies, he drinks the milk, he kisses mom, and he somehow gets out of the house and flies away all within one one-thousandth of a second. He's fast. And if the 91.8 million homes are evenly spread and distributed around the world, he is traveling at 3,000 times the speed of light. So the reindeer are impressive too. And just if you're wondering about the payload, if every child represented in all of those families receives nothing more than a medium-sized Lego set, his payload on the sleigh is 321,300 tons. That's about 100,000 tons more than a cruise ship. So if you need to get your roof repaired, now's the time. Santa Claus is everywhere. He's everywhere. And if you were an alien from outer space, I mean, you'd have to admit that some people at least must believe that it's about him. And I know a lot of people here, you know, have very strongly held opinions pro and con on Santa. I will tell you personally, uh, we have an understanding of Santa in our house and we just have fun with him. And he's fun. So have fun. But please understand that when it comes to what Christmas is really all about, he's not even in the conversation. He's just not. 
Christmas is about Jesus Christ, guys. It just is. And, and today, I want to step aside from all the Santa stories. And I want to tell you a story about him. And it's a story which ends with Jesus saying, hey, guys, you want to know what Christmas is all about? You want to know why I came into the world? He's going to say to us, I came into the world. And then he'll complete the statement. And the story is found in Luke chapter 19. It involves a guy whose name is Zacchaeus. And we've sung about Zacchaeus as we grew up. If you grew up in the Christian community, you sang about Zacchaeus. You know a little bit about his stature because Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he, right? Zacchaeus is really big in my estimation. I hope this morning that you really, really identify with this guy named Zacchaeus. He's special. So it involves Zacchaeus, and it happens in a city named Jericho, which was a magnificent city in the days of Christ. Jericho was a jewel in Palestine. Jericho was referred to in the days of Jesus as the Eden of Palestine. You've got to hear that for a minute because it's a reference to the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden, guys, is paradise. They're saying this city is like paradise. And it was very much like a garden. It was famous for its balsam groves. It was famous for its date palms. It was famous for its roses. It was the rose capital of the Middle East. It was said that as you approached Jericho, depending upon which way the wind was blowing, if it was blowing from Jericho toward you, you could smell the city for miles away. It was fragrant. It's beautiful. Jericho was located about six miles north of the Dead Sea. If you're familiar geographically with that area, you know the Dead Sea is the lowest elevation on the planet, which means that it's unbearably hot in the summer, but in the winter, when it's cold everywhere else, oh, it's nice in Jericho. And what happened is because of its beauty and its climate, it became sort of like the winter destination, you know, for all of the lifestyles of the rich and famous folks. It was an amazing place. Herod the Great built a theater there. Archelaus built a palace there. Mark Antony, when he was trying to figure out how to express his love for Cleopatra, gave her this city. Beautiful. Fragrant. Cultured. It was also a very wealthy city in that, if, again, if you understand it geographically and you see where the mountains are and you can figure out where the best place to cross the Jordan River is and you understand sort of where it is relative to the Dead Sea, what happened in those days, and even in our days, you know, is there are certain paths that developed, certain trade routes that were sort of the paths of least resistance. Well, one of the most significant trade routes in the whole region passed through the city of Jericho. And so as a result of that, what happened when the Romans came in and they conquered this whole region, they established established Jericho as one of the three taxing centers for the entirety of Palestine. So Luke starts this story by telling you that Jesus entered Jericho and he's calling to mind that city. He's calling to mind a city that is beautiful, that's fragrant, that's wealthy, that's cultured, and also a city that lined its main streets with sycamore fig trees that grew up over the streets and like a canopy and provided shade and beauty and, I don't know, figs, food. Keep that in mind. Luke tells us this in Luke 19, beginning in verse 1. He says, Jesus entered Jericho. That's the city we've been talking about. And then he says this and was passing through. And what he means by that is Jesus is not planning to stay. He's not planning to stop. He wasn't like figuring on getting a hotel room and let's hang out here because it's really nice. Jesus is not about that right now. Jesus is on a mission. He is going to Jerusalem. If you know where he's at in his life, 
And he's going there for the last time. He is going there to celebrate the Passover with his disciples for the final time. And then he is going to offer his body, his blood, as the true Lamb of God. As the sacrifice for the true sins of the true people of God. And how will he be sacrificed? Jesus will be nailed to a tree, but a tree located where? A tree located alongside one of the main streets leading into Jerusalem. You see, Jerusalem, too, had tree-lined streets. But they were different kinds of trees. So Jesus is just passing through. But then he meets Zacchaeus. Luke says Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. He's not planning to stop. But then he says, and there was a man named Zacchaeus, whom Luke then describes with only a few words, but he gives a very, very vivid description if you understand what he's saying. He says he was a tax collector and was rich. That speaks volumes. See, what happened again is when the Romans came in, they conquered the area, and then after they had raped and pillaged and plundered everybody, after they had killed your husband or killed your son or sons or maybe taken your wife or one of your daughters as concubines, after they had raided your barns and bank accounts, after they had stripped you bare of so much that you have worked all of your life for, okay? You're loving these guys, right? After they did that, they then again, they laid out that map and they divided your region according to trade routes and the best way to do it into taxing centers, Jericho being one of them. And then what they did was they sold, they auctioned these taxing centers off, and they didn't auction them off to Romans. They auctioned them off to local people. Now, why would they auction them off to local people? Because local people know who has the money and exactly where it is. They're the best at collecting the taxes. It's very logical. But think for a second about how you might feel about the guy who paid the most money to get that taxing district. Probably not too happy with him. My goodness, have not the Romans taken enough from us and now you're going to help them take more. Oh yeah, and lots more. Because what happened is the Romans would then come to the highest bidder and they would say, hey, here's the deal. This is how much money you need to collect in taxes every year from your taxing district. And here are the soldiers to help you do it. And you can collect as much as you want. Just send us this. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. He wasn't one of these menial guys who's down, you know, at the tax collecting booth on the street. No, he's at the apex of the pyramid. He's like the highest bidder guy. He is the chief. He's the head honcho. The man at the top. And he's rich, which tells you what? It tells you that he took a whole lot more from his own people than he needed to just to make a living, even a comfortable living. He is not a popular guy in this town. Zacchaeus was a hated man. He was hated as a traitor. He was hated as a thief. He was hated as an extortioner. He was hated as a criminal. He was a tax collector, which was about as insulting a term as there was in that day. He was barred from the worship of God as being a man who is just patently unclean and therefore unworthy to come into the presence of God or into God's temple, which represented his presence. And he was classified with a group of people who were classified together, prostitutes and so forth, as being a sinner. That was an actual label. Zacchaeus was a sinner. And I want to ask you this morning, 
What are you? Don't run too quickly away from Zacchaeus. Don't fail to identify with him. Luke says Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector and was rich. But then he says this, and it says, And Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was. You know, the obvious question then being, well, why? I mean, what's with the curiosity about Christ? And it may be that he was just curious because Jesus was really pretty phenomenal, wasn't he? I mean, he, you know, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the mute speak, the dead are raised. That's significant. Great speaker, great teacher. I mean, Jesus' reputation preceded him throughout this entire region, and everywhere he went, people flocked to just get a look at him. So maybe that's it. Or maybe it is that this man who's been barred from the temple of God, this man who is, in fact, a big sinner, tax collector, has heard that Jesus has a heart for tax collectors. He's heard that Jesus welcomes sinners. In fact, as you read through the life of Christ, that's probably the chief criticism that keeps coming up over and over and over again. As everybody who doesn't think of themselves as being sinners looks at Jesus and says, good grief, what's with you? What are you doing with these people? Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not. Because he was small of stature. And so he ran ahead. So you can see Jesus coming up the street, right? And you can see Zacchaeus, and he's trying to see Jesus. And you can see this crowd gathered around the streets. They'd heard that Jesus is coming. Jesus, by the way, is traveling in a group. He has an entourage. All of these people are passing through Jericho to go up to Jerusalem for the Passover, and it was customary for the people of the town to come out and to greet these travelers as they would come through in their groups. And I'm sure they set up their hot dog stands and cold water stands, and you know there might have been a commercial purpose too. But notwithstanding that, they would come out. Particularly if Jesus was coming, they would come out. And so here he comes, and he's walking up the tree-lined streets, heading to Jerusalem to himself be hung on a tree alongside a street. And Zacchaeus wants to see him, and he's trying to break through the crowd because he can't see over them. He's too short, small of stature, wee little man, and they won't let him through because he's a tax collector. He has a label, and it says sinner. So he's trying to break through, they don't let him. He's trying to break through, they don't let him. As Jesus is walking up, he's trying to break. He gets a little ahead, he can't get through. He gets a little ahead, he can't get through. Finally, he just realized, he anticipates the route. So he runs way up. And he does something that is utterly undignified. Climbs a tree. It says, but on account of the crowd, he could not see Jesus because he was small of stature. So he ran ahead and he climbed up into one of these sycamore fig trees that canopied the street. In order to see Jesus, for Jesus was about to pass by. Zacchaeus climbs a tree. And practically speaking, what he would have had to do to do that is he would have had to gird his loins. Have you heard that expression? Isn't that like so King James? It's 
But really, I mean, you read that over and over again in the Bible. You gird up your loins and gird up your loins. You know, you think, for example, of the parable of the prodigal son. And what's the picture? The picture is of the father who represents God. And what is he doing? He's standing on the roof of his house, staring toward the direction that his son had headed out down. And he's looking for his boy. Day after day. Until he sees that image on the distant horizon. And he recognizes the want. And he realizes it's him. And what does he do? Because it's utterly undignified. He girds up his loin. He grabs his, his robes and he ties them off at the, at the thigh, if you will. He bares his legs, which is something to this day no self-respecting man in that culture will do. And he bears them that he might run to his son. It's amazing. That's Zacchaeus too. I mean, Zacchaeus, you know, he's going to climb a tree. Try that in robes. So no doubt he ties his, his loins off at his thigh, if you will, and he climbs up in the tree. And I don't want to be overly graphic, but if you have the right angle on him up in the tree, it could be a bit revealing. Now here's why I say that. There's a nakedness involved in this one who is in a tree. He's exposed. Literally and figuratively. What does the tree represent to this man? What is he saying when he climbs up in this tree? He is recognizing before Jesus and before everyone there, they won't let me through. You know what? I'm a tax collector. Read the label. It says sinner. That's who I am. That's what I am. This tree that he climbs upon which there is a nakedness and exposing before God and man, you see, is emblematic of his sin. It's emblematic of his guilt. It's emblematic of his shame. He has lived his life in such a way as to have been forced, if you will, to be up in a tree. And it's the right place for him. It fits. So Zacchaeus ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see Jesus, for Jesus was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, meaning Jesus came to the tree, he looked up and saw Zacchaeus and said to him, Zacchaeus, <laughs> which must have been stunning because how does Jesus know this man's name? And if he knows his name, does he know also everything else about him? Tax collector. Sinner. But it's stunning also because of what the name means. The name Zacchaeus means righteous one. It means pure one. So here is God who knows everything. Walking around on planet earth. Coming across this guy who is a tax collector. Who is a sinner. Who understands it, whose life has put him up a tree, he comes to this man of all the people in the town. He's the chief tax collector. And he calls him righteous. It's a play on words. He speaks of him as being pure. Only Jesus can do that. It says, when Jesus came to that tree alongside that street in Jericho, the place where Zacchaeus was, he looked up and he saw Zacchaeus in the tree and he said to him, Zacchaeus, righteous one, pure one, hurry and come down because I've just changed my plans. I mean, I was just going to pass through and I have a date with a tree in Jerusalem, but 
but I must stay at your house today. And so Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received Jesus. And note how he receives him. He receives him joyfully. That is the mark of one who receives Christ. One who's been called out of a tree is joyful. And Zacchaeus is really jazzed. But the crowd is scandalized. Why? Because in those days, they were a bit more careful about who they hung out with than we are. In those days, to go to somebody's house and to eat with them or to go to somebody's house and to stay with them was to make a public statement about how you feel about this person. It was to say, in a sense, this person and I are intimately acquainted. This person and I are one, if you will. It's as though Jesus, if you will, is defiling himself with the very defilement of the tax collector, of the sinner, of this man who's in a tree, rightly. He might as well have just climbed up there and taken his place from the perspective of the crowd. And that's a thought to hang on to. It says, and when the crowd saw it, they all rejoiced and said, praise God, the great gospel of Jesus is obviously powerful enough to forgive anyone, even this man. No, that's not what they did at all. It says, they all grumbled. He has gone to end to be the guest of a man who is a, here's the label, sinner. There it is. And then Luke, who's with Jesus who witnesses all of this, starts telling us what happens at the house of Zacchaeus. It's really profound. It says, and Zacchaeus stood. So now they're at dinner, you see, and Zacchaeus stands up. And in those days, to stand up was to take a legal posture. It was to make a statement. They understood that when, you know, Zacchaeus would stand, he's about to make some kind of a declaration that's binding. This isn't some casual thing that he would say as he's reclining at the table. No, no, no. He gets up, and it's like E.F. Hutton. Everybody listens because it's a big deal. So Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. Now hang on a second, because there goes half of his net worth. Gone. Just like that. And you want to tell him to shut up at this point, don't you? But he doesn't. He keeps going. He says, And if I have defrauded anyone of anything... I'm sorry, but we covered that, didn't we, chief tax collector? Wealthy? And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. I will give them back four times what I have taken. The law of Moses would have required him to restore it in full and then add 20%. This guy just bankrupted himself. So what is Jesus going to say? I mean, it says Jesus said to him, whoa, Zacchaeus, you know, shh, stop, quit. Quit. <laughs> You know, I think you're getting carried away here, bud. I mean, I think maybe just the emotionalism of all of this has really just swept you away. You have lost track with reality here. Sit down, man. Don't, you know, I like that you want to right your wrongs. That's great. And, and, and if you want to start giving to the poor, I'm all about that. That's a wonderful thing. But this is extreme. You need to think about this. You need to take some deep breaths. You need to consult with your accountant and family. You need. He doesn't say any of those things. Jesus said to him, today, salvation, and that's the issue, has come to this house 
since he, this man Zacchaeus, is also a son of Abraham. Now, what is Jesus saying about like this whole event in salvation? Because it almost sounds like the man just bought his way into heaven. Well, if you just give half your stuff to the poor and then right all your wrongs, you're in, you're good. Is that what he's saying? No, it's not what he's saying at all. He's saying this man is righting his wrongs. This man is giving to the poor because he is saved. He's looking at the evidence of a changed heart. He's looking at something that doesn't happen naturally. It only happens supernaturally. And he's saying, clearly, salvation has come to this man because otherwise there's no explanation for this. Real faith makes a real difference in real lives. And if your faith does not make any real difference at all in your life, you need to go back and check to see if it is real. Where there's smoke, well, there's fire. Jesus is seeing the smoke and declaring the presence of the fire. This is a new man, and he's behaving in a new and in a radically new way. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone has truly come to faith in Christ, then he is a what? He's a new creation. He's not the same old guy anymore. In fact, the old has passed away, and behold, he says, the new has come. Previously, Zacchaeus' whole life had revolved around money. That was obviously his issue. He had traded his family for it, his friends for it, his heritage for it, his people for it, his nation for it, his dignity for it, his reputation for it. He had traded God for it. He couldn't worship at the temple. And he's a Jew. He had trusted in it for his safety and his security. He had worshipped it with his life and his whole life revolved around it. But all of a sudden, everything's different. And that's different too. And Jesus sees it and says, that's a changed man. He says, today salvation has come to this house. And then he says, since he, Zacchaeus, also is a son of Abraham, which is a little confusing until you look at Abraham, because what happened in the life of Abraham, and I'll paraphrase, but God comes to Abraham at the beginning of the story, and he says in, a, in so many words, look, I am God and nothing and no one else is, so here's what I want you to do in faith. Do in faith. He says, I want you to leave your country. I want you to leave your relatives. I want you to leave your father's household. I want you to leave everything that you've trusted in all of your pretty long life at that point. Your safety and security. I want you to leave it all behind and I want you to follow me. I want you to go to the land that I will show you. He doesn't know where the land is. He doesn't know what the journey is going to entail. He doesn't know what it's going to cost. He doesn't know what he's going to encounter along the way. He doesn't know where he's going to end up or how he's going to end up once he gets there. He doesn't know, but he trusts in God. And therefore he goes. It's the demonstration of his faith. God later comes to the same man, Abraham, toward the end of his life. And, he, and now it's a question of love. It's a question of worship. It's a question of that which he valued absolutely more than anything else. Is it his son? Or is it God himself? And so God comes to him and said, look, I want you to take your son, your only son, the one whom you love, Isaac. But do you love him more than me? And I want you to take him to the land of Moriah and I want you to walk him up a mountain that I will show you when you get there. Do you hear the corollary? In both cases, he's not sure exactly what the destination is. And when you get there, I want you to cut his throat. I want you to drain out all of his blood. I want you to consume his body in a flame as a burnt offering to me. What are you going to do? 
You know what Abraham does? Abraham goes. God spares his son. I say that in case you don't know the end of that story. He passes, however, the test. He makes it clear. He makes it clear that God is his primary object of worship. Well, the Lord looks at Zacchaeus and he sees that same kind of faith. There's such a radical change from one thing to the next that he says today salvation has come to this house and Zacchaeus also is a son of Abraham. And then, as the climactic statement of the story tells us what Christmas is all about, he says, for the Son of Man, that's Christ, came, that's Christmas. To do what? To seek and to save the lost. Who's that? It's everyone who understands, like Zacchaeus did, that really, when all is said and done, that they're a tax collector and a sinner. That they have lived their lives in such a way as to leave them rightly in a tree of sin, of guilt, of shame, that they have been exposed before God and exposed even, in many cases, before man. They've been seen for what they are, for who they are, and who then run to Jesus for safety, for rescue. For he came to seek and to save the lost. And how did he do it? Well, he marched through Jericho, didn't he? And then he took Zacchaeus' place in a tree alongside a different road. He comes to us in our tree of sin and guilt and shame. And he so identifies with us by faith that our sin becomes his. His righteousness becomes ours. And Jesus, with his body and blood, becomes the sacrifice in the tree that we deserve to be. That's it. And so then, when we come to him in faith, who are we? We're Zacchaeus. We're the one that he looks at and sees for who we really are and yet calls righteous and pure. That's what Christmas is all about. And that beats the pants off Santa Claus. This does. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your glory that we see in the glory of Christmas. Father, in the face of your son, not just a child, but a man. We thank you for the one who came into this world, who traveled our highways and byways, who saw us with penetrating insight, who looks into our hearts and our souls and sees us for who we really are exposed and up a tree and yet loves us so much to freely offer to take our place in that tree and to himself die on a tree as the punishment for our sins. We thank you for his birth, for his life, Lord, for the death that he was born to die. Father, for his resurrection and for his coming again. For that is Christmas. And I pray that you would give us the faith 
to see and to behold and to worship him as such. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.